Hello, and welcome to Farmarama. We're grateful to those of you who support us and allow us to bring you these stories every month. Even the smallest contribution makes a big difference to us. So if you'd like to become a supporter, please visit patreon.com forward slash Farmarama. This month, we have a roundup from the ever-inspiring Oxford Rail Farming Conference, where we were once again official media partners. We miss seeing many of you there in person, but the big advantage of it being online is that you can re-watch all of the sessions from this year's conference. So do head to their YouTube channel to tune into much more. We're featuring just a few ideas that we delved into a bit deeper, including continuous wheat cropping, land relationships in England, and wondrous woodchip. John Letts is a wheat grower and crop developer living in Buckinghamshire, known for growing heritage grains. He joined us after his talk at this year's Oxford Real Farming Conference to explain continuous cropping, something that goes against the grain for many wheat growers. The system that I've been working on and developing produces three times the amount of grain as an organic system um, over, let's say, a five-year rotation. It's just more productive. We need to grow a lot more grain if we're going to feed the UK. I understand why rotation is so important. Obviously, if you're growing vegetables, if you're growing a few other things, and particularly if you're growing livestock, organic is fantastic. But if you're growing grain, you can only grow grain once every five years because you need this three-year clover grass lay rotation element to build up nitrogen and then you put in one crop so three years of clover grass one year of grain maybe then another a second year of wheat perhaps which is usually animal feed so really there's only one crop of milling wheat to feed humans in that whole system and it might yield 1.6 1.8 tons and, and my older heritage grain populations produce perhaps 1.3 i think i can get 1.5 certainly get 1.2, 1.1. But if you get it every year, you've got three times the yield of grain with no animal production. And that's fine. I don't have the infrastructure for animals. A lot of people don't want to grow livestock. Um, and the grain's super high quality. It's really resilient because it's genetically diverse population, so it can take all the terrible weather that's coming away. Most organic farmers grow modern varieties. And I think they're still in, locked into that very industrial production system. Obviously, it's far better with no chemicals, and, and but it's still pretty much an industrial system where the idea is you grow a monoculture of a modern variety. They usually have very shallow root systems. Uh, I think you have problems with disease. You know, the idea is to get rid of the weeds in between because that's stealing nutrients from the crop. Well, I say embrace your weeds, embrace that diversity, that biodiversity, and accept the lower yield. But if you get it every year, then you're actually producing more. So to me, it makes lots of sense. The only thing that leaves the field is the grain. So all that carbon's being sequestered in some way. It goes onto the surface. It's mimicking a natural ecosystem. So the organic matter surface builds up, breaks down, feeds the crop as the crop needs it. And really deep-rooted plants. I don't have a problem with disease. Thriving biodiversity. But the key as well is that I undersow with clover, short white clover, and clover obviously fixes nitrogen, and far more than you get from manure. 
you know, you don't need massive quantities of nitrogen to grow good quality wheat if you've got the right wheat. So I, I just think the system we're on, organic or conventional, is not going to feed us. And I think the conventional system is is just um, you know bankrupt. So we have to have an alternative, and this is the best one that I can see after all the years I've been looking at this, drawing on archaeology, ecology, genetics, seems to work for me. Certainly produces lovely whiskey, gin, beer, bread, and pizza. So it's got to be working. I wanted the lowest possible input system I could find. And, and that just means you know, mimicking a natural wild cereal kind of ecosystem, as far as I can see, what was done in the Neolithic period, let's say in the first 5,000 years of farming. All I need to do is broadcast my seed into the clover and stubble, or perhaps direct drill it if I have that equipment, and then mow it and close the gate, walk away, and then come back and harvest 1.2 tons. I've done that. It, you know, it works. I mean, you could perhaps mow it again in the spring. There are ways of tweaking it. But you're not driving up and down the field. And organic farmers do the same. They till between the rows. You know, it's, it's still an input, high input system. So it just so in an agroecological sense, which we're all talking about, I think that using genetically diverse populations – as, as I've been doing, and using this system is far more agroecological than and the organic systems where people do claim they're doing things in an agroecological way, but I still think it's intensive. You know, when you look at the history of where organic farming came from, it, it wasn't certainly about grain production, but I think in recent years people have realized that you don't just need dead plants plowed down to rot, to feed the soil, but you need living plants, you need living mulches, you need, you know, you know weeds are, are helping in many ways. I think people forget that, you know, 80% of the grain produced by a cereal crop comes from the upper, the very, very top of the plant, the upper flag leaf and the upper stem and the ear. They're the, the part of the plant that's collecting all that sunshine and converting it into grain. Everything else is structural, it's architectural, it's uh, part of the ecosystem. So, you know, my cereals are, are very, very tall, and you can you can have a thriving understory, almost like a, a mini Amazon rainforest. There's a lot of stuff going on at that lower level that feeds that wider community. It, it is rewilding. I always say it's rewilding the cereal field. Everyone talks about planting trees and everything else. Great. But I still want to feed people. I still want to produce food, and I think we can rewild our cereal fields and use them to sequester massive amounts of carbon and yet still produce, well, three times more than organic. If organic is seen as acceptable, surely this system can be seen successful. I started to call it, and I think it's a good one, a natural grain farming system. Natural grain farming rather than restorative continuous grain cropping, which is maybe a mouthful. It does make sense to me, restorative. It's restoring genetic diversity, restoring ecosystems, restoring the health of the soil. But everyone says, well, what is that? Well, natural grain farming. Because it is drawing on kind of Pukuoka and permaculture and a lot of those older ideas. He called his system natural farming. Um, like Shumei agriculture is natural farming. So I may, I may rebrand as natural grain farming. Bombarded by farmers since the ORFC talk. Um, Everybody wants to grow it. It's, I, I don't have a shortage of people wanting to grow it. Because farming is, farmers, farmers are in a difficult place. They don't make any 
money on cereals mostly. I mean, the price of cereals is going up in the world because of, of, of climate change and grain failures around the world. It seems a bit crazy, but um, that, that's why it's useful. Anyway, they all want to grow it. The problem is the lack of a market. We need to develop the market. We need, people need to make a commitment to, to help. And in the talk at the RFC, I think I talked about, um, to me, the price of saving the planet is 11 pence extra on the pizza you buy at a pizzeria, which doesn't seem a lot to me. And maybe three times that for a, a decent loaf, a, a lovely big loaf of sourdough that sells for five pounds. Well, that's the price. That's the price of switching our grain production from conventional to heritage. I, I am a scientist and I do want to apply all the science we can. I, you know, I, I did plant breeding, I've been an ecologist, I've done all those things. So I'm, I'm, I embrace every potential advantage that science can give us, but we also have to draw on the wisdom of our ancestors, the way people crops, you know, crops were saved from year to year, all of, all of that. But also I've worked as an archeologist. So I think that's given me a certain perspective on the history of cereals and how crops were grown in the Neolithic. And you've got to juggle that all together and come up with a brand new system, as far as I can see. It's only an approach. You know, I'm not claiming that uh, I have the answer very specifically to everything, but I think this approach is something that can be applied all over. Francis Northrop works for the New Economics Foundation and is an associate fellow specializing in local economies. She's interested in land, as well as municipal politics and something called New Municipalism. I hope I said that right. <laughs> we caught up with Francis after a session to hear about a project she worked on last year called Land for Who? Until I was probably about 40, I didn't realize how important land was to everything which is partly what inspired the research into Land for Who. So I was working for Transition Town Totnes, and we were looking at how to build resilience through food growing and retrofitting and renewable energy and health and care services. And it very quickly became apparent that without access to land, we couldn't do any of those things. And it also became apparent how little land there was that was available to us for those things because it was all held in various ownerships that were not really conducive to speaking to us about those uses. It was actually a conversation with Guy Shrubsall in the summer of 2020, after he published his book, Who Owns England? And we were just sort of saying, talking about the Scottish Land Commission and saying, you know, I, I think it's a rhetorical question that many people have asked, you know, like why, what about an English Land Commission? You know, obviously the conditions with the government in Scotland are more um, sort of, yeah, conducive to that. And down here in England, it's a little more tricky, but we thought that it was something that it was worth kind of exploring. The way that we designed the research itself was that we wanted, because a lot of my work is practice-based, working with groups that are trying to access land or fighting uh, bad development or, you know, sort of unhealthy uses of land. I wanted to really centre those people in the research, but it felt important to have this first stage, which was looking at a review of existing work on land that had been done. Um, so there's a, a list of about 10 different publications that were reviewed, and that's all available uh, for people to look at. But what really came through strongly, and this is also through the land narratives work that Shared Assets have been doing, is that 
the people who talk about land are the people who are the closest to the land already, who are already quite privileged in that they're able to talk about it or have land already. And actually what we wanted for the second piece of research, which would be more detailed, would be to talk to the people who were the furthest from the land and what they were doing to try and uh, change the system. Because we recognise that it's not just through policy. And so what is it? Is that campaigning? Is it, you know, um, direct action practice? That kind of thing. And we really wanted to fundamentally understand that bit better and also try to bring um, people together that we interviewed so that we could, uh, you know, sort of reflect the findings to them. One of the really interesting findings that kept coming up was that change moves at the speed of trust. And I think within the land movement itself, there needs to be a a real consideration about the history of England's sort of colonisation of the world and its nearest (laughs) neighbours. The word English is really triggering for people, unsurprisingly. And so I think what we really sort of came out with was that until we actually understand the real fundamental narrative of how messed up the land system is in England and the history of that and the people who are most affected by that being leading that conversation, then we can't really change the land system. I think one of the really interesting things we found was that we started to talk to people who were involved in things that weren't necessarily related to land when you first look at them. So, you know, people organising around uh, the police and crime bill, you know, against that prison abolition you know people who are looking at various different movements around justice that weren't necessarily land justice like disability justice or uh, you know disabled justice or racial justice but everything kept coming back to the land that was the shared baseline for everything it's really really necessary to have uh, ownership and more sort of control over land to make the different things happen so say if you wanted to abolish a prison and instead have therapeutic land work. So there's a project down here near me called Landworks that works with um, with prisoners who are you know coming out of people coming out of prison. If you want more of that, there's got to be more land to make that available. It really is an intersectional campaign that needs to be run, and the people in the room don't necessarily just have to be people who are working on land justice. I don't know if you've heard of the E15 mum e15 focus mum so there were a, a group of young women who were uh, single parents who were um faced with eviction from a hostel in newham in london and they decided to oppose that and then systematically organized against a lot of the council house clearance council estate clearances in newham under the previous mayor and were you know built their power in, in an incredible way most people actually don't spend time in the countryside or on the land because everywhere is very built up, really. And there is this real divide between rural and urban that we also wanted to make sure that in the next sort of phase of the research that we really focus on that and try to bring that together so that people are able to connect with the land or create more pockets of nature in urban centres. My work on municipalism, so this is, you know, the, the work that's sort of inspired by things that are happening in Barcelona and in Zagreb and, and other places where people have kind of won the city, activists have become, you know, sort of elected into city government. What's really interesting, and, and obviously what's happening in Chile recently as well, what's really interesting is that it's been the grassroots movements and the groups that have kind of mobilised together 
to create that situation and that platform and that awareness that's made people see that there is a different way for things to work. And so with the land stuff, I I see a very similar kind of evolution of, of more and more groups that see that they've got a shared intention around something, that the land underpins everything. And so having that solidarity and and sort of intersectional solidarity will lead to something that is really, really quite transformative. And I don't know what that looks like, but I, but I think it's, I really like being part of, you know, making a small contribution to kind of bringing people together to talk about that more. We end this month hearing from a longtime friend and supporter of Famarama. For the keenest of listeners, you may remember hearing from him in our first ever episode over six years ago. Ben Raskin is head of horticulture and agroforestry at the Soil Association, and he just released his latest book, The Woodchip Handbook, a brilliant read about all things woodchip. The sort of the eureka moment probably was at Helen's farm where we've been using a lot of wood chip for mulching trees and we pollarded a whole bunch of uh, very mature willows along the riverbank. So we had this mountain of willow wood chip and in one place it was right next to a new planting. So we thought that's great. We'll just pile it over the fence and at some point I will spread it out and mulch all the trees of it. And of course, you know, didn't get back to mulching all the trees of it. So so there was a corner of this new planting where the trees had a mulch of about two and a half feet deep of willow wood chip, which is probably more than you would normally recommend. And that was in 2018, which was, if you remember, but was a really, really dry year. So a lot of the trees that we put in suffered. We had quite a lot of losses in, in the trees we planted that year. But the trees that had this massive depth of mulch not only didn't die but also grew phenomenally to the point where I was actually over there yesterday looking at them and the ones that didn't have a mulch or they had a tiny mulch but had almost no mulch are still barely past my waist the one with this deep mulch are probably 12 feet tall so I just I looked at that and thought oh my god this is I mean this is serious stuff i come across the work of David Granitstein, who's a um, researcher in the States working with commercial orchards. And he's done some really interesting work on the financials of different weed control methods, um, which basically shows if you use a a wood chip or or compost mulch, you not only get the benefits of the water retention and the weed control, but you get increased soil health and yield. So although it seems expensive to put it down, actually commercially it can pay for itself. And then the work with uh, Ian Tolhurst here in the UK, who's been adding wood chip to his soil uh, and making propagation compost from it. The work of Sally Westerway and Joe Smith at Organic Research Centre, looking at Romeo wood chip. So just all these things suddenly made me think, Mike, there's a lot of there's a lot to learn with wood chip, and and it's not just something to put on your paths, basically. Uh, and so, so I, I, yeah, I, I put a proposal in to, to write a book on it and they went, oh, OK, then. <laughs> in the book, I researched a lot of stuff and, and there's actually quite a lot of studies on mulches and water retention and weed control. And the uh, the general rule seems to be it needs to be at least 15 centimetres deep to have uh, a, a good effect on weed control and moisture retention. 
my experiment seems to show that if you can do it deeper, that might give you extra benefit. And to some extent, it's weighing up, you know, how much chip you've got, how many trees you've got to mulch, uh, you know, the cost of doing it and all of that stuff. I would say to some extent, the more you can put down, the the more probably the more benefit you're going to have up up to a point. But it's it's weighing up the cost. Yeah. There's a fear. There's definitely a fear of it, and and this sort of myth that you can't put it anywhere near soil, or it's going to, you know, kill everything. And I mean, there is a grain of truth in there, you know. So you can cause yourself problems, but the the risk of it, in my opinion, is massively overstated. It seems to rob nitrogen only from the bit of soil it touches. So about you know one centimeter, say, from where it touches the soil. So if you're just spreading it on the surface you will cause some nitrogen lockup in that top 1% of the soil. If you're growing vegetables or shallow rooted plants, so we potentially, we had a problem, I think, with raspberries, which are very shallow rooted, um, and we put a lot of wood chip on, and I think they might have caused some issues. But the other thing is don't dig, don't dig fresh wood chip into the soil, basically. That's when the problems come, when you get uncomposted wood chip and you dig it into the soil because then suddenly it's touching every bit of the soil and you know every little wood chip has got this sort of one centimeter area around it that it's being affected if you're worried then there's two things you can do one is you can compost it so if you stack it and compost it for six to 12 months then it will already have started breaking down and and is started that process already so it will be very unlikely to to take any more nitrogen from the soil you can always add a nitrogen source to it. Um, so you can add, you know, slurry or manure or sort of green compost, which obviously provides that nutrient source in the nitrogen source and, and stops it sucking it out of the soil. The other thing uh, is you if you have ramial wood chip, so ramial wood chip or ramial wood chip is where you have uh, wood chip that comes from branches that are less than seven centimeters in diameter so the young growth basically and because it has a much higher ratio of bark to heartwood there's more nutrients in it more nitrogen specifically but but also more other nutrients so the 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 rather scarce scientific evidence seems to suggest you can add ramial wood chip directly to soil uncomposted uh fresh without causing any nitrogen problems and the beauty of that in a way is you can just chip and spread it straight in the soil. So rather than having to cart it back somewhere, compost it, and then re-spread it or mix it with stuff, it becomes a very easy operation to build fertility in your soil using the woody resource that's next to your soil. The other sort of really exciting bit for me, I think, is where you then think of it as part of a planned uh, resource as part of your whole farm planning using agroforestry. So you build in short rotation coppice into your system you get the benefits of extra biodiversity and shelter or browse for the livestock and you know wind protection all of those things while it's growing but rather than having to have a massive tree growing into it you can manage it you can spread the chip then into the rows potentially between so you've got this effectively never-ending source of soil health and you know fungal building wonder material that's bringing you a whole range of other benefits on the farm as well. If we assume, which I think is fairly well understood and, and accepted, that uh, a lot of our soils have become too bacterially dominant uh, and we want to try and bring them back 
a little bit towards having a higher fungal content. Um, and I would say particularly in systems where you're trying to get trees to grow or, or shrubs to grow, you know, they particularly want a more fungal soil. Adding wood chip in a way is a kind of, I look at it as a way of, of getting there quicker. Um, so, you know, inevitably when you plant a tree and don't disturb the soil, you will get more fungi in the soil because it's not being disturbed uh, and there's a tree root and, and over time that fungal population will build up. But by adding wood chip, you're providing easy access food for the fungi. You've already broken it down. It's easy for the fungus to get into. Um, they can quickly colonize. Uh, and so, so you're jump starting, I think, the process of, of increasing the fungi. Obviously, initially, particularly under the trees, if you're mulching, but if you're then spreading it over over the soil, then it will do that as well. I mean, not specifically on the fungi necessarily, but one of the another of these those kind of eureka moments was at Ian Tolhurst farm, where he'd been spreading the composted wood chip on his um, vegetable rotations, and we were standing in the middle of winter in one of his fields, uh, and looked down, and there wasn't a bit of the soil that wasn't a worm cast. You know, it was, and he put the wood chip down like three or four weeks before. I can't remember exactly, but we we looked down. I was trying to find a bit of soil that wasn't a worm cast, and I couldn't. And his soil is not, you know, it's not grade one land. It's 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 not the best soil from that point of view. But the the biological inactivity in it was just astounding. And and he certainly put some of that down to to when he started using wood chip. He said, you know, and he's been there for thirty years, as as your listeners I'm sure will know. He's you know he's been at the forefront of a lot of some of these agroecological developments for forever but he still says that his productivity and soil health jumped another level when he started using wood chip so i think one of the reasons that agroforestry has been a bit slow to catch on is that i think in this country we've sort of slipped away from seeing trees as a useful asset and a resource to them being a problem on farm you know so a lot of farmers you know, they'll have hedgerows, they'll have some corners of woodland, but they won't be using them. They'll just be in the way and they've got to manage them and it costs them money. And it's been really hard historically to uh, to get any financial return on trees at that small scale. So I think one of the big opportunities going forward, obviously, there's the potential for payment for public goods, which could shift the economics. But the other thing is is I think to to really start to develop some of those farm, woodland, agroforestry scale supply chains, products, local markets. And obviously one of the first markets to look at is your own market, you know, which so which is where the wood chip fits in. You know, if you're producing it for your own, whether it's wood chip bedding for your livestock or to spread on the soil, you know, it's very easy to see the benefit of reduced input costs or something like that. You could be growing your own fence posts. There's lots of ways that we use wood on land that we could be supplying it ourselves rather than importing it. But the other big challenge that that I think we see coming down the line is is actually getting hold of trees. You know, everybody has these massive planting ambitions. But at the moment, we're not even able to supply the trees to meet current demand. You know, I mean, I tried to buy some trees in December and between me getting an initial quote and getting the finance finalized, they'd sold out half of them again. And I think for farmers, I think we need to be looking at growing some of our own. And certainly that's, you know, Eastbrook, we're planning to do that. We're looking at, you know, what are some of the easier ones that we can grow and collect seed locally? Um, You know, local provenance, I think, will become important for 
for some crops. But equally, there are some big opportunities, for instance, around nut growing in the UK, um, you know, where you need, you really want specialist varieties that are going to be productive. You know, do we even have the right varieties for the UK climate? Do we need to, you know, implement a UK nut breeding program that's really going to provide the best ones for the UK climate? Or is the climate changing enough that we can manage with the ones we've got? I don't think we know, um, but somebody's going to need to be producing all of those uh, nut trees. That's a specialist job, probably. You know, it's not something that that all of us are just going to be able to do on our farms. But I think there's some there's some massive opportunities for new businesses to set up as tree production nurseries. Off probably, you know, lots of them at lo local small scale. You know, it, on farm, it doesn't have to be sort of big new nurseries I think we could be we could be looking at uh, relocalizing that as well as relocalizing the supply chain at the other end this episode of Farmerama was made by me Joe Barrett Abby Rose and Olivia Oldham big thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team Katie Revel, Fran Bailey Annie Landless Eliza Jenkins and Dora Taylor our theme music is by Owen Barrett <laughs>